Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? <clears throat> it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2016. And this is the Promotional More Practice live chat. I hope you're doing well. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this podcast. And uh, we'll go for about 90 minutes or so today, give or take, probably take. And uh, we'll talk about any number of issues, of course. Conor McGregor having his featherweight title stripped. We'll talk about the injury woes at American Kickboxing Academy and what they mean. We'll talk about, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but here we are. Bjorn Rebney is back, starting what it appears to be, if the Deadspin reports are accurate, the Mixed Martial Arts uh, Athletes Association, so the MMAAA. Yeah, that's weird. But in any case, uh, we'll talk about that and whatever else is on your mind. You put your comments in our questions in the live thread that is on uh, MMAfighting.com, where this little window is embedded, and we'll get to those uh, today. Once I turn green, get priority, but not exclusivity. Ooh, um, as you can see, I got a haircut, but I need to trim my beard. It's a little bit out of control. Got my wizard shirt on, you know, even though they're... <sighs> beyond terrible uh you gotta support the home team right so there you go all right with that out of the way let us get to the questions okay the use this is the first question this is what they wrote not me the uselessness of cm punk as a ufc fighter okay putting into perspective just how far cm punk has to go to stand a chance with everyone on the ufc roster who would win in an open weight fight, Cyborg or CM Punk? Do we even think he could beat any of the women on the roster? Okay, well, I won't get to the last one because the idea of CM Punk fighting women is not something I care to spend a ton of time thinking about. But if you're asking me who I would pick in a fight between Cyborg and CM Punk, I'd take Cyborg. Um, she's what a purple brown belt in the gi in jiu-jitsu. She has heavy competition experience. She's strong, big. Um, yeah, I like her chances a lot and just very technical, you know? So, I mean, maybe she'd lose, but I, you know, I, I like her chances of that one. Now, you know, if it's open weight anyway, not at 135 or something like that, but you know, if she's like 150 ish, 170 ish. Yeah. She could do some damage. She could do some damage, but this is such a inconsequential thing to consider. It's like, well, what about this extraordinarily skilled woman? who's relatively close in size to this guy who has no real skills for a given level uh, at all. I mean, what kind of a question is that? We're not, we're not assessing anything of value there. Someone says, I need to get a Ken Bone sweater. Hilarious. Uh, okay, off-the-record news. Look, I want to ask, what's the most crazy off-the-record thing you were ever told but since you cannot answer that, can you answer in what ways fans would view the sport promotions and fighters differently if we knew all the stuff that was said off the record? Um, I don't, the craziest off the record story I've been told wouldn't involve any active fighters. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know how you dance around this one. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I just can't. I can't. But suffice to say, your opinion of some people would change substantially. There's like, I, I've, I've said this before. There, there could be an entire industry of unreported news 
and you could have like its own MMA news economy and it could thrive um, from stuff that never got reported either because it was off the record or it was hard to get two sources to substantiate or um, maybe some outlets don't want to report it. I don't know, but uh, I'm telling you like the amount of things that go unreported and don't let any other journalist tell you otherwise, because it's a thousand percent true um, is extraordinary extraordinary so if you ever wonder like why journalists might have certain views of certain people that you can't quite square because it doesn't match up what's going on publicly i'm not talking about me personally just sort of generally if you think you're like why are journalists always thinking a certain way about a certain person there's probably a reason to that it's because they might know something that uh, at least think they know something that they can't or won't report which is its own other problem by the way but um but yes there is an extraordinary amount i can't overstate it at all of unreported news. All right, let's get to it. Shall we? McGregor stripped of the belt. Luke, what are your thoughts on McGregor being stripped of the belt? Do you wish it would have happened sooner or was it necessary for them to let him keep it so that he could become a two division champ? Also on a scale of one to 10, how hilarious were Kavanaugh's comments about the UFC's decision to strip McGregor of the belt being short sighted? Uh, well, I mean, a coach sticking up for his guy, I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot to say about that. Um, so this, this is an interesting one because I'm basically of two minds about it. And I think on one mind, I think a lot of you will agree on the other mind. I suspect many of you won't. So let's start where we probably have some common ground. The nature of the way in which he was stripped seems so absurd, hard to square with reality. So you had an injury cancel a main event of an event where you could have had George St. Pierre, but you play too much and you couldn't work out a deal. And by the way, if in fact it's true, he was asking for 10 million seems quite, quite reasonable to me. Of course, I'm not the one signing the checks, but just doing a little bit of napkin math. That's not an extraordinary demand. Um, at least in terms of rev share. So you couldn't get the guy who you needed to to headline the show. The substitute you put in, which was a fine fight between two very excellent fighters, falls through because of injury, which we'll get to in a separate moment. And what you do to salvage it is you plug in the co-main event, and then to make that look better, you put a, a title that literally doesn't need to exist and didn't exist before you pulled it out of thin air. It just seems absurd to a degree that almost doesn't even deserve comment. Uh, that is, I don't even know what that is. That is uh, alchemy. Uh, that is, um, <laughs> you know, Ben Folks wrote a great piece where it was like insulting to the audience. Like, do you really think this is going to make the pay-per-view sell more? It's not. I mean, certainly it would probably look better on a poster if you can say it's for a championship, but how many pay-per-view buys are you really adding with that? Probably none. Um, it's a fine fight, but adding a title that didn't exist for, for, for no real purpose doesn't make that fight any more than what it already is, especially now at five rounds. Um, you know, obviously I feel bad for Jose Aldo because now he's the champion. Like this is not how Jose Aldo probably wanted to regain full championship status in the featherweight division. I suspect he wanted to do it by getting revenge on Conor McGregor. Now, whether he would have, even if the fight had been made, separate issue for the moment. But you can imagine if you're Jose Aldo, you're kind of like, uh, this isn't what I wanted either. Now, I spoke to Max Holloway, and he was like, look, 
you know, he does take a little bit of pride in it. And, and I don't want to bag on anything that he might feel like is really worthy to him. You know, it certainly puts you in a, what appears to be the most solidified number one contender status you can possibly amass. That meaning there's a, a belt attached to it, right? So that, you know, however insignificant the belt might be, it's still a belt on some level. And I think that does, you know, if you're a number one contender and you're carrying a belt, you probably feel like your chances of getting a title shot are pretty strong at that point. So it does have some value for him in that respect. And these guys who've been working their whole lives to get titles in the case of Max Holloway, um, you know, Anthony Pez already tasted UFC gold. Max Holloway has not. So I can understand where he might have a little bit of, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't put too much value on it, but he didn't try to distance itself himself from the idea that there was a lot of value to it. So he was sort of in the middle and playing it cool, which is probably the, the right call, but the nature of the stripping just feels bizarre. It's like, you guys are the ones who are staging this event. You guys are the ones who own this company. You guys are the ones who have the business that, uh, and many of the people in this company have been in the business for a very long time. Surely you re realize this will do nothing to add to pay-per-view buys. Surely, surely you must understand this. We do as consumers. Um, so that actually led me to a second theory. And I don't know this to be true, but like rather than view, just change your perspective about it. In other words, rather than viewing this as a situation where the UFC is stripping McGregor to compensate for a damaged pay-per-view event that they have to go through with, flip it around. That they, in other words, that is it unreasonable to think that they know adding a non-existent, a heretofore non-existent interim featherweight belt to a Max Holloway, Anthony Pettis, they know that's not going to add anything to pay-per-view, but what it does give them is just the right moment to take the belt from Conor McGregor, which they probably wanted to do from the moment he got it, right? They said before, if he wins this belt, they're going to take it from him, right? One of them, whichever ones he wants to give up, and most likely in this case, featherweight. Uh, and that injury to Daniel Cormier and the subsequent removal of that bout from the card um, enabled them to say, aha, here's our chance. Here's our chance. Here's what we can do. We can elevate Jose to full champion. We can create an interim title, and we can take the belt from Connor, right? Because it just seems virtually implausible to me that they really, in their heart of hearts, believe putting an interim belt on the line between Pettis and Holloway meaningfully adds to the commercial returns they're going to get at UFC 206. I just have a hard time believing that. I really, really do. Now, maybe it's something of it dresses up the pay-per-view in certain ways on the broadcast that they like the idea of wrapping a belt around the winner. And so it's less about the commercial returns and more about some kind of general aesthetic in terms of what it looks like as a production. Okay, maybe that's it. But I, I feel like I really feel like we have to sort of consider the idea. Again, I do not assert it with the strongest degree of truth, but I don't think we can eliminate from the realm of realistic possibility that this was all designed around the opportunity to take it from Connor because the longer he held it, um, the more arbitrary it would look if they took it down the line. And certainly it looks arbitrary now, or at least flimsy, the reasons that they took it, but it's only been two weeks. They went and got it right away, right? If I'm the UFC and it's been two weeks and we have this opening to do it, however manufactured it might be, you can see why that would be an enticing possibility. So at least it's something to consider that rather than us being like, you know, this is not going to help 206, 
Think of it as we know it's not going to help 206, but it's going to help us in some kind of power struggle with this guy who is now asking to be part owner. I think that is something that has occurred to me. Now, putting all that aside, um, in the abstract, I'm really not opposed to him being stripped. I find the, the present circumstances, of course, as we just mentioned, to be very unfortunate and very weird and very hard to understand and potentially, given your perspective, if you've been folks who wrote a great column on MMA Junkie slash USA Today, um, you know, potentially demeaning to the fan base's intelligence. Uh, but, but all that aside, um, I, I'm not really upset about the UFC taking his title in some kind of general context-free or at least context-minimized situation, right? You want I, – I would, I would think you would imagine that most fans who are thinking rationally through this, you do want the UFC to have some latitude about how they strip a fighter and when. They might do it earlier in some cases. They might do it later in others. There might be some variance on how that's applied. That variance might be problematic in the end because it's hard to find some consistency. But at the end of the day, giving them some wide latitude, I don't think that's a bad idea. Secondly, this is where a fighter's union could really have something to say, which is, I think in the end, you would still, even in that case with a fighter's union, you would want the UFC to have some latitude about who and when and how they could strip a fighter. However, you would also want there to be at least some baseline considerations, right? Um, if you're healthy, you can't be stripped until after a year or something like that. You know, just think of some baseline demands that wouldn't sound too unrealistic that would at least, you know, Connor would at least know what he was working with. I think that's the other problem. He had these two titles and all of a sudden snatched out of thin air and he was like, you know, it's not that they can't take it. They have the right to take it. But here now, why? Like he, he's all these guys are flying blind. And I think um, having some of that fleshed out a little bit would probably work to everyone's, at least the fighter's advantage. So that's another thing to consider. But here's the thing to think about. A lot of people have brought up this argument, and I really cannot understand its appeal at all, which is, well, so-and-so was out for a very long time, and they didn't strip him, and Connor was out out of a less overall time from defending his title. I think I saw Cajal Pendred bring up the fact that Cormier was out 13, 14 months, and... Um, and Connor was out, you know, or at least not defending that featherweight belt for about 11. I, I find this to be a very unconvincing argument. Um, again, if you want to be upset at the circumstances by which it was taken in this particular case, or how these guys have no real roadmap of how they're supposed to know when they can keep their titles or not, I'm with you a thousand percent, a thousand percent, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. However, this argument that we should treat guys who are perfectly healthy and have stated far and wide that the only reason they're not defending their title is because doing so is uninteresting to them and they are perfectly healthy, that we should deem that the same as someone who is literally medically ineligible to compete seems like a disastrously bad idea, a disastrously bad idea. The champion has a responsibility to the weight class and at a point, if they are medically ineligible to compete by their own prolonged negligence or inability to manage their health, as you've seen in the case with Frank Mir in 2004 and 2005, yes, you take away their title. You just take away their title. You have to. The division has to roll on. But to say, well, that person who was perfectly healthy, who said the only reason he didn't want to defend his title is because it bored him, should be treated as someone who has a torn ACL is ludicrous. It is totally ludicrous. 
The champion has a responsibility to that weight class, to those contenders. Those contenders have a right to vie for it. And if he wishes to abdicate it while healthy, I'm not saying you don't get a shot here or there, but the clock's ticking. The clock's ticking. So to me, this idea that like, well, you know, so-and-so was out longer. So-and-so was injured. Um, now, there are three cases where that's not true. There are three cases where, so here's what I asked. Rather than asking who was out longer, McGregor or Aldo, McGregor or uh, Velasquez, McGregor or Cormier, these are not the right questions to ask. The right question to ask is which UFC fighters were stripped before they had a title defense? And you'll find that there's a limited number of cases. Now, in the case of, uh, let's say, even before a year, but whatever the case, um, after Velazquez won it against Brock Lesnar, he didn't defend it until about, I think, 12 or 13 months later. However, he tore his shoulder in that fight, and I had the same surgery he did. You just don't come back from that quickly. The shoulder is an incredibly complicated joint. It goes up, down, side to side, forward. It can go this, it can go that, it can go back. It is an incredibly difficult injury to heal, and he injured it during the course of the bout itself, not in training. You give that guy a mulligan, especially since he came back on the stated timeline that the doctors laid out. That was not the case with Mir, for example, in 2004 after the motorcycle accident, which is why he was eventually stripped. But he, Mir, is one of three other cases you can point to where a fighter in the UFC was stripped before they had a title defense. It's not the case with Pettis. It's not the case with Cruz. It's not the case with Cormier, who defended his title five months after winning it. It is not the case with Velasquez. It is not the case with anyone else. Just those three before Conor McGregor. The first one in 1997, Randy Couture uh, won it and then was stripped, um, I think, five or six months later when he decided to go fight in Japan. Now, they say he relinquished it. He says he was stripped, whatever. But this is 1997. Zufa didn't even own it. I don't even think the unified rules were in place. This is hardly some kind of scenario that is precedent setting. At least it's not a very clear one anyway. The other two scenarios are BJ Penn after beating Matt Hughes and Frank Mir after winning the title against, uh, I want to say Tim Sylvia, but I have to verify that. But in any case, um, let's talk about BJ Penn. BJ Penn beats Matt Hughes and then I think six months later goes to side, decides to fight in K1. They snatch his title. He never defended it, but he chose to go and fight in Japan at a time where the UFC was crazy insane about um, holding on to their talent and and beating all these other organizations that were all, all around the world. K1 was big at the time, as you can well imagine. So that was only six months they took it. Frank Mir is the one that kind of is this in- interesting situation. He gets into a motorcycle accident. Six months later, they create an interim title when he couldn't come back 14 months later for a fight. That was supposed to be August of 2005. Then they ultimately stripped him. In other words, he was on a medical timeline and when he could no longer make that medical timeline, they took it away. But in every other case of a champion being out a long time, they at least had one title defense within that 12-month time frame. Now, you could say, okay, well, Connor had it in 11. Fine. If Connor had come out, out of UFC 205 and been like, look, I'm going to take a break, but my next fight's going to be at featherweight, and they just took it anyway, that would be a major, major problem. But even his favorite fans... And his top acolytes, they all say he was really never going to go back to to featherweight. So then what's the big deal? 
you, you're telling me he was never going to go back. You're telling me he had no interest in defending that title. It was just an ornament. If that's the case, then they got to move on. Now, I agree that the circumstances by which they took it are just so flimsy, and they make no sense, and they're just, it just bizarre and weird. And I agree that these fighters, they don't really know what they're up against. There's no roadmap for them to know that I can keep it for a year or I can't. Hey, this one situation differs from this. What's the policy? What's the precedent? We don't even know. Sure, fine. But all of you are saying he had no intentions of going back to featherweight. And certainly his next fight could even be at welterweight. Guys, you just can't have it both ways. This guy was totally healthy and took two welterweight fights and a lightweight fight. And that's great. He achieved incredible things in doing them. But if you're not going to go back to the division, the division has to move on, man. It just has to move on. And if you're not on the sidelines on a medical timeline for return, you're just taking a break. And then after that break, you don't know if you're going to come back to the weight class. I, I don't I don't think that like that I'm not sure what the big to do is as a result of that. Um, he's not going to defend it. It's got to be defended. Now, some of you have said as a consequence, and I think you're right. Well, what does that do to the title? Yeah, it diminishes it. Like there's no two ways about it. That title is super diminished. The one that Jose Aldo has around his waist. I mean, you guys know who the king of that division is. Um, but. The division has to go on. It has to go on. And here's my what I think is that with the passage of enough time, um, you know, new flowers will bloom in that garden, which isn't merely to say that um, new contenders will emerge or new figures of power will uh, arise. But uh, people will eventually just sort of realize as there's enough distance from this moment you know, maybe it's two years, maybe it's three years. I, I don't know how long it's going to be, but I, I am very confident that eventually what's going to happen is that um, with enough passage of time, the eventual champion, whoever it is down the line, will be seen as the rightful king of that division. And it will take some time, but that process has to have some kind of start point. So um, so that's kind of where I am. It's that I, I, I just don't, I think for me, the one thing I just, if I can just drive home and I'll move on to the next question the one thing I could really, really want to center in on is I find this argument that so-and-so was out longer um, to just be a very bad argument because in almost all of those cases, if not all of them, uh, it's from being medically ineligible to compete. And in the cases where like Mir, who had a devastating motorcycle accident when he was out um, and couldn't make the timeline, they stripped it from him. And in the case of Cruz, when he had kept having repeated injuries, they stripped it from him. And in the case of um, you know, uh, Cain Velasquez, who'd had a little more than a year to wait and to defend it. Um, he was, had surgery and was medically ineligible to compete. Like to me, that is just not from an injury that was in a fight, you know, that's not irresponsible training. And he went back and he defended it and he lost it. And then when he won it again, he defended it two more times. You know, if he had just squeezed in one title defense in there, I think this would be a very, very different conversation, but he had none and he had none because he told everyone it doesn't interest me. Okay. Then if it doesn't interest you, let's all move on. And I and I and I feel like that's probably the best idea. It just so happens that the juncture in which they took it from him is insane. Insane. All right. Um, is there anything new to this question? Uh, let's go to this one. This is a good question. 
MMA media's handling of the McGregor-UFC conflict. Greatest of mornings, greatest of afternoons. To begin, I must apologize if the question below comes off as rude. I don't care about that. It can be rude. As an MMA journalist, do you feel that covering Conor McGregor and UFC's relationship seems to be, at times, a really difficult balancing act? Yeah, it's, that's true of anyone, but especially true of that one. Not just because McGregor seems to inspire both fanatical and loathing fandoms, but also because in that relationship, both sides often feel having valid points while also making dumb arguments. Okay, I'm not sure what you mean. For example, the UFC has a very valid reason to strip that featherweight title from a champion that has shown no interest in defending it, yet managed to do so in an utterly stupid way. Yes, I would agree with that. And that this balancing act seems to, at times, lead to MMA journalism pieces that appear really one-sided either for the UFC or usually for McGregor. And I just want to repeat, this is not in any way intended as a direct criticism of anyone. Yeah, look, um, well, first of all, whenever it talks about these media... Um, how the media handled it, I, I, you, you always need to provide specifics. Now, I'm not saying that this question is not basically correct in this particular circumstance, but just as a general rule for anyone out there who wants to criticize the media, always be sure to co collect examples all along the way and say, here's an example. You guys said X, Y happened. You said if Y happened, you would do Z. And in fact, you did not do Z, right? So you're connecting all the dots. Here are examples all along the way. You know, isn't this a problem? You know, always make sure you do that, because if you don't do that, it's going to be hard to know exactly what you're talking about. But in this particular circumstance, there is a general, I would say, uniformity about the way in which McGregor's title was taken from him. Um, you know, um, I don't know anyone who thinks that way was a good idea. Now, in, in my sense, like, did I think they had to strip him right away? No, I'm just not going to be offended at the idea. In the Again, in the abstract sense, given all these other things I've already mentioned. Um but sure, MMA journalism, there might be groupthink. There might be guys all over the places. Here's what I would say generally. You know, look, some people are going to be sympathetic to the UFC's case completely. Some are going to be sympathetic to Connor's case uh, very strongly, right? He elicits strong responses. Um, here's what I would just guard against. And this went back to the AKA injuries. Whenever you see people floating an idea in the media and everyone seems to agree um, they may very well be correct. It may just be that the position is so correct and so reasonable that, um, not that there's not room for dissent, but that there's basically no need. But I am usually skeptical of those kinds of situations. Uh, I find that in the media, there is a ton of groupthink that, that people agree to certain positions that are not very justifiable, that there's a lot of nuance that they don't want to admit. And I think that's okay, right? This is what I mean when I say whenever someone criticizes me or some other journalist or something, they always say, you guys are biased. Y yeah, right. We're human beings. We were born in a certain country at a certain era at a certain time. We were raised with certain values. You see the world accordingly. It's not possible to divorce yourself from the reality in which you exist um, and the books you've read and the things you've seen and the and the world as you've experienced it and the tragedy and the success and the failure and the poverty or the or the riches or whatever the case, all of these things inform your judgment in unique ways. And so it's your responsibility as a reader and mine certainly as a media member in a different capacity to try and flesh out and figure out um, what's really true and what's really not. And I often find a lot of times people coalesce around a single idea and 
maybe the core of that idea is correct, although sometimes even that's not true, but there's a lot of different orbiting pieces that are not, that people just sort of assume. And there's a lot of people who sort of sort of glom onto an idea without really thinking it through. I see this all the time, and I'm guilty of having done it, by the way. This is not to say I'm sort of above it all. No, 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 I've made that mistake countless times. Um, just be wary of that. And I can go for any number of different situations, from a UFC fighter's dispute with the UFC, vice versa, um, to something with uh, God knows. Who, I mean, just pick your situation, right? There can be a million of them. But just always remember that there's a lot of groupthink in this industry, and there's a lot of reason to at least, if not say it's outright wrong, um, have a healthy degree of skepticism about it. But just know, even if there's groupthink, that doesn't mean that the people involved in that are necessarily being dishonest. It's hard to figure out the truth. You're working with a lot of limited information, and you're trying to present the world as you see it the best you can. And that's a tightrope, and it's harder to do than it sounds. Um, and I think if it was easier, you'd see a lot more people doing it without much problem. And I, I can't find a side of media, sports or otherwise, where they've got this figured out. Are journalists supposed to give equal coverage to both sides? Um, giving equal weight gives validity to both. No, it, well, sort of. For example, should journalists give balanced coverage to the survivors and deniers in a Holocaust story? No, right? That, this is where this argument comes from. You got to give both sides equal time. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have to give the amount of attention to a cause to the extent you can best determine that it merits it. Now, that doesn't mean you have to dismiss it out of hand, but you know, certainly if someone is out there saying, uh, I believe... I'm, my mother was Armenian, that all Armenians are descended from uh, orangutans. You know, we have enough degree of scientific evidence to say that this is not a situation or a person that deserves a great amount of attention versus someone who says, no, no, I think that they're homo sapiens um, and did not, while well, primates, uh, did not descend from uh, orangutans as such. Um, you don't have to give these people equal weight. One clearly deserves more than the other, but these situations become a little bit more complex as some of these things become less obvious. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, okay, Anthony Johnson, too much faith in UFC. Is it me or is it a big mistake for Rumble to wait for DC? In my opinion, he should have taken that interim fight, and here are my reasons. First, DC is giving you the best case scenario for his return with zero setbacks. Uh, if Rumble takes the interim fight and becomes interim champion, then he has to fight DC. But if DC comes back in the summer and John Jones is set to return, who do you think the UFC is going to match him up? Rumble putting his faith in Dana and the UFC seems like the biggest mistake of his career because the UFC is going to do what is best for the UFC. Am I crazy to think this? I don't think it's crazy, but I also don't think that Anthony Johnson's a fool. He is not a fool. He might have any number of other shortcomings, but being a dummy is not one of them. Uh, at least as it relates to how to manage his career at this point. So the reason why he probably didn't take it is because I'd like his chances against Gugard Musasi. I really would. But that's a tough fight. That's a tough fight against a guy who's had a great year, by the way. I think he's won four fights already this year and is looking better each time. And uh, if he wins that, he gets to keep the position that he basically already has. Now, I agree if John Jones comes back that... You know, that makes it a little bit more complicated. But there's enough reason to think that he won't. There's enough reason to think that Cormier will be back before then anyway. Right? Talking about a March-ish return. Um, and why why take the risk? If you need the paycheck, that's one thing. But if you don't need the money and the guy's going to be back around March, it's probably okay. It's probably okay to wait. Now, if he was going to be out a year or something, 
right? If he had like, again, a torn shoulder or God, you know, God forbid something wrong with his neck or back or something, uh, then the calculation becomes different. But if he's going to be back first quarter of 2017, John Jones, we know for a fact, no matter what, won't be. Uh, and you, all you gain by beating Musasi is a belt you don't really need because you already got that position. I can understand why he said no. I can very clearly understand why he said no. This is a crazy one, man. This is a crazy one. Rebney making moves. Fighters Association, CAA versus WMEIMG. What do you think of the repercussions of today's announcement for Rebney and Co.? Well, he hasn't made them yet, so I don't know. But he's got GSP, Kane Velasquez, TJ Dillashaw, Cowboy Cerrone, and Tim Kennedy on his team. So he certainly has some leverage. How do you think the UFC WMEIMG will react? Well, they are not going to lay down for him. I can assure you that. I can assure you that. Um, I wonder, man, this is craziness. I never, <laughs> hold on a second. Ugh, I never saw Rebney coming back. Uh, I thought his exit from MMA was, you know, I don't know, final is the word, but at least from this level of MMA was a fairly foregone conclusion, especially since this is a guy who took Eddie Alvarez to court to retain his services, whatever you think of the legal argument there. That very act is something a lot of promoters won't really go through. Um, you know, they did it with Rampage, but that was, to me, a very different situation. Um, so there's that. Um, there's a lot of guys and agents who, uh, you know, have told me personally they didn't enjoy working with him. And I can tell you, you know, do you guys remember when he was removed from Bellator? You didn't see a lot of Bellator employees coming out in his defense. Now, partly because I don't think they wanted to come out in such a way that they would jeopardize their job, but I mean more than that. They didn't they didn't um there weren't a lot of eulogies for the time they had together. Right, there was not a lot of oh man, those were the days with Bjorn. What a great guy! You just didn't hear a lot of that, and I can tell you privately, a lot of them said exactly the opposite that they had a big problem with him. Um, now, part of that was because of the way in which he was a control freak in their words, or you know, um, I think many of them have described to me that he had some ego issues. So he just seemed like an unlikely candidate for this current predicament. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a good idea. That doesn't mean he hasn't built a, as you've noted, a formidable what appears to be alliance of some kind, certainly some names in this effort. Um, so we'll see where this goes. You know, maybe he's a changed guy or maybe he, maybe he is the right guy for this. You know, the one thing that they did all say when I spoke to a bunch of Bellator employees after the fact was, you know, look, whatever else we want to say about Bjorn, the guy had an incredible passion for what he was doing. And, um, you know, if he can pour that into an MMA fighters union, who's to say it couldn't work out. So I'm going to see what he has to say later. Uh, I just find, you know, if I had to pick a candidate who would be, you know, would fit certain criteria as an organizing force for the rights of fighters, uh, he would not be the top of the list. Doesn't mean that the list is right, but on first glance, there are not a lot of conditions he satisfies that makes him that guy. So there's that. Um, but the questions I have before today's announcement and I'll be on that call. I'm going to put it on while I'm on my show. Is this just a proxy war for CAA versus WME? Is that what this is? If so, then that is incredibly tragic. 
What's going to happen to the PFA? You saw this week that um, Leslie Smith and a man who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, Lucas Middlebrook, both left the organization. You had Jeff Boris, I think, in my own Mark Ramundi's article saying, you know, I underestimated how easy it would be to convince fighters a union was a good thing. I overestimated how hard it would be to get them to stop being fearful of the UFC. That didn't sound very good, did it? That doesn't sound very inspiring. Um, and the MMAFA has been around a very long time. And of course, they're sort of immersed, if not officially, but sort of also by proxy in this fighter lawsuit and the Ali Act. But now with Trump's administration moving into my hometown, um, that is probably DOA. So it is just amazing to me. <laughs> you have to give Rebney credit, man. Do you want to talk about a guy? And I mentioned this before, how long you can maintain yourself in this business is in and of itself a measurement of your success. Like even if you stay the same for 10 years, the fact that you existed for 10 years in MMA is hard to do. He is not only returning, he is returning with a vengeance. Like out of nowhere, he's coming back with George St. Pierre and Cain Velazquez and uh, another guy who was a champion, TJ Dillashaw, to say nothing of Don Cerrone and Tim Kennedy, two guys who are... Um, you know, certainly Cerrone, a fan favorite, and Tim Kennedy, obviously uh, um, not quite the fan favorite. I don't think that Don Cerrone is, but nevertheless, um, a figure of adoration, especially given his military background for a lot of people involved in the sport. That is shocking to me. And clearly, we have all underestimated him, me included. We have all underestimated this guy. Um, I don't know how he's done it. I guess we're going to figure that out. We'll have to see. But... Um, the only thing I've just found amazing is that you've got the PFA, the MMAFA, and now this new thing, the double A, the double M, triple A, whatever they're going to call it. Um, I don't know who's going to win. I don't know who's going to get the national, the NLRB to recognize them as the certified union. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen here, but it is amazing to me that the first two actors in the space, MMAFA and then PFA, could either miscalculate, stumble, or just procrastinate to the point where here comes, of all people, <laughs> Bjorn Rebney, and with him in tow is George St. Pierre. Wow. Wow. How have you feathered the bed for this unlikeliest of characters? That, that is shocking. That is super, super shocking. But... Maybe he's got the right idea. Maybe the Bjorn, as we understood him, is no more. Um, and maybe this organization is exactly what the sport needs. Um, you know, we're, all, we're talking about the guy who was the architect of the tournament structure. But maybe his talents are better suited in this endeavor. You know, he is a lawyer by trade. Um, four o'clock can't come soon enough. <laughs> That's how I put it. All right. In a recent interview, McGregor's manager was really blunt about McGregor wanting to do those fights because they were the biggest money fights, which was also the reason he was cool on Habib as he didn't see it necessarily drawing that much. While this seeming McGregor sentiment itself wasn't surprising, were you taken aback or worried about how directly it was stated here by the prominent members of, the, of his team that for them it is more about finding big money fights instead of going against deserving challenges? Especially when the list of top fights... Seems to be curiously same as the one McGregor's coach has been pushing as of late. 
No. McGregor is absolutely entitled to fight who he wants on the terms he wants. Uh, he won't get everything he wants, but he's uh, he's he's not hiding it. He's getting out there. Someone says, odd how everyone talks bad about Rebney. Has no one ever paid attention to Dana White's actions and words? Rebney is a saint compared to that guy. Well, let's assume that's true. And Dana White is certainly no friend of organized labor. Dana White's not trying to create organized labor. <laughs> Right. I mean, imagine Dana White was forced out with this new WME sale. And the next thing you see is that he's trying to back a fighters union. We, the outcry would be even greater. It would be even greater because this is a guy who bragged about how they had things that we were, they were allowed to do because there was no um, union to curb them. That's not a joke. That's the truth. So I don't think anyone thinks Dana White is a saint. I certainly do not. I don't know anyone in the media who does, but. He was the president. He is the president and part owner. He is doing everything you thought he would. This is very, very different from Bjorn Rebney. In any case, back to McGregor and calling out what he wants. Look, you want a fighter to stay what they want, state what they want. Hey, he wants to fight, maybe, let's see, Nate Diaz or Tyron Woodley or whatever they can. Fine, state those things. Doesn't mean you have to give in to them, but uh, I would rather he be honest about his intentions. And I don't begrudge him making money. That's what he he really cares about. Go make money. Now, of course, he just got the two titles, but let's assume that that you know he doesn't want to go to welterweight or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that he does, but I'm just thinking that like if in fact it was the case, like Diaz, that money mattered more to him than titles. Yeah, cool. Go try lobby for it. I don't have any problem with that. Um, that doesn't mean we the rest of us have to think that the contendership queue can just be repeatedly ignored. Or maybe you do. Maybe you agree. That's fine too. We, we can all disagree here or agree, but I don't think that being mad, I don't think there's a lot of cause to be mad at McGregor for like clearly stating his intentions. I intend to get two belts. I intend to go maybe potentially fight at welterweight. I intend to fight guys who can make a lot of money. I'm not interested in guys I can make, not make a lot of money from. Uh, I'm not, I'm not upset with that. No. Fighter of the year. 2016 is soon to be over, and Cody Garbrandt just brought up the conversation about fighter of the year. This was from my show yesterday. So who are your contenders, Luke? Cody, if he beats Cruz, Connor, Joanna, Stipe, Nunes, if she beats Ronda. Nunes, if she, she beats Ronda, still wouldn't qualify for me. But here are, as I see it, the top four candidates. This person has them out here. By the way, this was the case for Cody. If he loses at UFC 207, the point is completely moot. It wouldn't he wouldn't even be in the running even a little bit. But if he is in the running after you UFC 207, because let's say he wins, and you might find that to be a very remote possibility, and that you might be right. But stranger things have happened. This is what his 2016 will look like. Follow me here. Ready? This is his 2016. In February, he KO'd Augusto Mendez in less than a round. In May, he KO'd Thomas Almeida in less than three minutes. In August, he TKO'd Takeya Mizugaki in less than a minute. So three first-round finishes. Now, that by itself does not qualify him even close to being fighter of the year. But if he follows that up with a win over Dominic Cruz, let's say he stops him in the second or third round, which might be very unlikely, but just follow me for a second. That means he'll have, A, fought four times in 2016. Number two, he'll have gone from unranked to champion. 
Number three, he'll have defeated three top contenders in that division, at least three of the top names anyway, in Almeida, Mizugaki, and Cruz. And Cruz is also ranked number three on the pound-for-pound list. Ladies and gentlemen, if that winds up being his year, they don't come much better than that. You fight four times, you beat three of the top guys, including the champ, who the champ is also number three pound-for-pound. Bro, you cannot have a whole lot of years better than that in the sport. Period. That is an insanely successful year. But there are other guys who have also had insanely successful years. Number one, Michael Bisping, who not only defeated arguably the greatest of all time, but then took the title from the current champ or the then current champion in uh, less than a round and then followed up with a title defense against Dan Henderson, another all-time legend. So he would have won three fights in the year. So Garbrandt would have four, but Bisping would have three. And he would have decisioned Silva and Henderson and then stopped Luke Rockhold to win the title in less than a round. That's a pretty good year. That's a damn, damn, damn good year. Then you have Steve Miocic. He only fought three times, not four. But in those three times, he beat Andre Arlovsky in the first round, beat Fabrizio Verdun to take the title in the first round, and then stopped Alistair Overeem in the first round. So he also has all first-round finishes. Now, a little bit of caveat, didn't fight four times, and he got rocked by Overeem in that first fight. So while he won in the first round, he did show some vulnerability. But nevertheless, Steve Miocic just had a baller-ass year, okay? And then, of course, there's Conor McGregor. Who could forget? He is also in the running. Here's what he had. Now, he started off the year on a bad note. He lost to Nate Diaz far outside of his weight class, but that was a situation that he agreed to, however, inadvisably. He followed that up later on by defeating Nate Diaz uh, by decision. And then he goes on back to lightweight and then takes the title from Eddie Alvarez, becoming the first ever two-time, or not two-time, two-division UFC champion. He has now since been stripped, but of course, that uh, moment in time cannot be taken away from him. So how do you measure that? An all-time great performance and achievement in the same year where he lost. I don't think a loss disqualifies you, but you can't ignore it either. Um, does it cancel out certain achievements in certain ways? We can have a debate about that. To me, I say the clubhouse leader at the moment and I know a bunch of people are just going to say Connor out of popularity, but to me, if you lose in a year and you only fought three times, I don't know. Um, it's crazy because Connor has a loss. None of the other guys do who are at least in contention for it. Um, and Miocic has all first round stoppages, but he's also competing in heavyweight, which is not one of the better divisions. Then again, he also be the champion and then defended it against one of the all time great heavyweights. So, that's a tough one, too. Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I like Stipe's resume. I like Bisping's story. I think if Cody beats Cruz, he's the only one who would have, would have fought four times. And obviously, Connor did what no one else has done before, but he also lost in that same year. So um, there's a lot of different ways you can go. The only point about Cody, and again, if he loses at 207, then it's uh, you know completely out of the running. But the only point about Cody was people are like, oh, how could you even consider it? Well, Dude, I'm playing it out pretty clearly here for you. If he wins, if, which is the biggest of ifs. It's like an if the size of the Empire State Building. But if he wins, how do you not understand how good that year is? Right? Starches Thomas Almeida, walks through Augusto Mendez. Just uh, Mizugaki lasts 48 seconds with him. And if he can do something like that to Cruz, the number three pound-for-pound guy in the sport, in my judgment, the guy with the highest fight IQ, irrespective of weight class, a revolutionary in terms of technique, that's a pretty nice achievement. That at least puts him in the running. 
It doesn't make him the the, the fighter of the year. Uh, it doesn't clearly set him aside uh, far and away from his contemporaries. I'm not saying any of that. It at least puts him in the conversation so we can figure it out. But to me, if Cody wins at UFC 207, your four clubhouse leaders are Bisping, Stipe, Cody, and Connor. There you go. TV killed the pay-per-view star. Interesting title. Uh, Luke, with the UFC seeking, expecting megabucks with a new multi-network TV deal, could we see an end to pay-per-views? We've become so accustomed to big fights in both boxing and MMA being on pay-per-view that if it would seem weird to have them on network television, how do you see it affecting UFC popularity with it being available to a bigger casual audience? Side question, if UFC 205 was on network TV, what sort of viewership do you think it could have generated? I don't know, 20 million or more? A lot. Could have generated a lot. Um, it's a good question. I don't know how they're going to get that money they think they're going to get. Over $400 million a year? I don't know how they're going to get that. I, I, I'm not saying they won't. I've seen crazier things. But that is a lot of money for an industry where even sports is beginning to fragment um, and be pulled apart from unbundling. Or re- I should say, un- not unbundling, rebundling. Um I don't know the answer to this. I've been thinking about this question too. Some have speculated that what might happen is the UFC, because they're going to give up production control, which I cannot wait for. They're going to give up production control. And um, maybe that means that they'll ask for help on pay-per-views so that there'll be some kind of coordination between the two entities over these events. I don't know. Here's what I don't understand. How do you... You mean to tell me you're going to do 12 pay-per-views a year, 13 maybe, and you're going to leave enough fight nights and Fox events left to garner $450 bucks? Boy, that is ambitious. Mm. That is ambitious. No, yeah, you're going to definitely have to cut events and stack them like it's going out of style, like IHOP pancakes to get that done. I don't know how. I don't think TV has killed off pay-per-view. Pay-per-view is doing quite well. But the question is, is one medium cannibalizing the other one? How much is there really to split? I think that's the really overarching question. How much of this can be divided into pay-per-view and divided into TV rights and uh, still draw maximum amounts of revenue from both streams? And there's a limit to that, I think anyone would agree. But um, I don't know how they're going to do that. I really I really don't. I'm not saying they're not going to get a big rights fee uh, increase, but... 450 million while maintaining 12 to 13 pay-per-views. Boy, that that seems like a lot. That seems like a lot. It seems like a lot, especially in terms of, you know, keep in mind, pay-per-view is still, you know, the largest source of revenue for the company. Um, now, obviously, Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey, and more so Conor McGregor at this point, is a big part of that. But nevertheless, um, it's still a very lucrative environment. If you produce the right kind of content for that environment, it is clear people will still pay for it. It's not going away. Um, but if you're asking how they're going to get $450 million a year for just their television rights while maintaining enough quality to sell at a reasonable clip, 12 pay-per-views, maybe 13, I don't know the answer to that. I am curious to see them try. 
Not saying they can't, but mm. what is your favorite alcoholic beverage of choice? Well, Rampage called me Zangief. Do I look like Zangief? Kind of do, right? Uh, favorite alcoholic beverage. Now, this is not my favorite, but if it's just a Friday night and I'm working, I don't really drink too much on the school night anymore. Um, but if it's a Friday night and it's just I need something to get hammered off of, your boy likes to have a Jim Beam and Coke Zero, which you might be saying to yourself, Jesus Christ, Luke. That is the Chef Boyardee ravioli. That's that's the beefaroni of cocktails. And I wouldn't dispute that. I would tell you absolutely that is rot gut trash. But I'm not going to spend a lot of money. You know, I'm a large, I'm a large gentleman. You guys have seen the pictures. Uh I I weigh probably more than most of you uh by choice. Your boy is in the gym putting on weight. So um it takes a lot for me to get drunk. I mean, seriously, if you gave me beers, I don't know that I could get drunk. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it would take, it would take a lot. It would take a lot. And I don't want to do that. I just want to get right to the source. Now, if we're just drinking for pleasure, um, your Japanese whiskeys are preferable. I had one the other day, not a Japanese whiskey, uh, called Eagle Rare. You guys had Eagle, I think that's what it's called, Eagle Rare. Let me see. Uh, it's a bourbon, right? Yes, Eagle Rare. Uh, this was excellent. This was an excellent bourbon. Uh, you could drink it neat. Um, incredibly tasty, complex flavors, smooth, um, really high-quality bourbon. So there's a good one for you if you want to try that one. I enjoyed it very much. And you can mix that one too. It's not so nice that you can't mix it. But, you know, you get the idea. But if it's just your boy trying to get liquored up, as my friend used to tell me, sauced up, chilling in the cut, uh, <laughs> it's Jim Beam and, and Coke Zero. All right. I haven't heard that in a long time. Sauced up, chilling in the cut. <laughs> oh, it's my good friend Alex. All right. Here we go. True or false? The UFC is really kicking themselves for not negotiating with GSP to headline the 206 card. I suspect they remain obstinate, but it's pretty clear that if you're having to take your featherweight champion's belt two weeks afterwards because you couldn't strike a deal with a guy who is not asking for an outrageous amount of money relative to what he could potentially draw for a card that you're now creating phony titles for because you think that might save it, you made some bad choices along the way. I feel like Kurt Osiander. You know what I mean? Like if someone has passed to side control on you and they have head control with like a cross face, you fucked up a long time ago. Uh, fighters from AKA shouldn't hold anything higher than a co-main event spot on a card. False. Let me make a quick point about this AKA stuff. Look, there, Michael Hutchinson, I believe is his name from Bloody Elbow, has done um, a little bit of yeoman's work here in trying to put together you know, injury rate information about the various camps. And it is pretty clear at least from the numbers he's produced, that in answering the basic question, does American Kickboxing Academy have a higher rate of injuries insofar as fight cancellations or changes are concerned? The answer appears to be yes. Now, this data is very preliminary. There are some questions about it, but let's just say there is some math to substantiate that uh, claim or, or at least answer that question. However, it's not clear what the cause is. Now, a lot of people think it's extra sparring. 
some people think it's uh, there's been videos of Cain Velasquez doing like outrageously stupid um, weight training, and I've seen the videos, and I don't know what he's doing, but um, that could be that. But here's the point about AKA stuff. I'm willing to accept the idea that there's probably some things they could do differently, but I think this is one of the things I mentioned earlier about groupthink. Oh, AKA needs to train different. Okay, okay, genius. How? Now, how many of you have ever constructed for a professional fighter, let's say a professional fighter in the UFC, an eight-week camp in terms of what they're going to train on what days in what kind of way for how long and with whom? How many of you? Raise your hand if you've done that. I'll wait here. I don't see many hands going up. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have an opinion to offer here or a thing to say. That's not true. That's the big mistake that some of these fighters make. What have you ever done? What can you say? Well, I can't, I'm allowed to have an opinion, and I don't think it's wrong to say the math shows you guys have a problem. The only thing I object to is when someone says they need to do X, why are you saying that? In other words, you're saying they need to train differently. Okay, how? How and why? What have you identified in those numbers that tells me you can eliminate something definitively? What I object to about the AKA analysis is not the idea that they can probably do some things differently. The problem is we don't have any idea what they could do differently. I don't think the problem that it's affecting DC is necessarily affecting Velazquez or is affecting Luke Rockhold. In fact, there may be a whole series of different things they could be doing. In fact, it may be that they're not tailoring things for enough guys. I don't know what the answer is. It could also be that they've got a guys who are a bunch of uh, talented yet genetically predisposed to injury kind of guys. It could also be that Cormier is the first uh, this year is the first time he's ever pulled out with an injury. He's also 37 years old. Right, and that's adding to it. And of course, Javier Mendez has pointed out some of these things that happened to Nurmagomedov may have happened somewhere else. Look, all I'm saying is you're probably right to think that AKA has an injury issue. Where that stops is in then prescribing a change. We don't have nearly enough information to understand what the problem is. We're not there. The vast we're not. I mean, I don't know how often you're there. I'm not there very often. I've been there a couple of times. It's a very nice facility, by the way. Um, I don't have nearly enough information to say I can clearly pinpoint that as the problem. And not just that that is the problem for this guy, but for every guy. Everyone thinks it's a one problem that's been replicated at scale rather than it's a bunch of individual things going on. Maybe it's those, maybe it's not. I don't know. And the truth is neither do you. We don't really know. What we can do, though, and this is where I think the, the public has a right to really say something is like, guys, this is a problem. Cain Velasquez lost four years of his prime. Daniel Cormier, you just had to pull out twice in the same year. Luke Rockhold, I mean, how many times are you going to show up to a fight and claim you had staff and then pull out the next one? Gents, <laughs> you guys need to figure this out. Uh, there's clearly a case to say that. Or maybe it's, you know, encourage them to do some self-reflection and encourage them to do some training. Encourage them to 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 reevaluate things that can be done differently. Bring in a trainer on site who can uh, specialize in rehabilitative services. Um, I had Daniel Cormier in my show, and the thing he said to me was, you know, I did less rounds. You listen to everyone's injury concerns um, before UFC 200, and I was walking out. I felt unprepared. And that to an extent, impacted his his fight. Now, the crazy part about that is that means he's believing potentially even in the placebo effect. You mean to tell me you did like, what, five to ten less rounds of sparring for that fight? Now, maybe it was John Jones. Maybe you would have lost. I don't know. But 
that wasn't enough for Anderson Silva. That was more than enough for Anderson Silva. Uh, and maybe it may have been enough for John Jones. Here's the point. Let's assume that in actual reality, the amount of le- the amount of sparring he had done less not only would not change things in terms of his performance, but maybe even make him better. But if he doesn't believe that, if he doesn't believe that, it does him no good. So they have to find a way to make these guys who are obsessive about competition, obsessive about doing every piece of homework imaginable, comfortable with some kind of training regimen or whatever else the problem is, could be diet, could be, I don't know, a lack of, again, rehabilitative services that makes them comfortable going forward. Because whatever they're doing now, unless they're just genetically predisposed to the injury with the same things everyone else is doing, which, by the way, is a unlikely but possible theory, they're going to have some problems. The only thing I just don't want folks to go with, well, you need to do less sparring. I mean, maybe they need to do less sparring, but we don't actually know that, do we? We don't. We don't have any data that proves that. Well, they need to do less weight training. Is that is that true? I don't know that that's true. Uh, we just have a lot of anecdotes. We don't really have a lot of good information about that. All right. Nate Diaz is more likely to get a lightweight title shot than either Habib or Tony Ferguson. I'll say true. UFC 205 likely pulled in 1.6 to 1.8 million pay-per-view buys. False. It's interesting that despite Romero's cardio issues, he has five third-round knockouts to his name. He gets busy in that third round, doesn't he? I'll say true. Chris Weidman would really benefit from a tune-up fight with Tim Boach. True. JDS could very well get the next shot at the heavyweight title considering he has wins over Verdum, Velasquez, and Miocic. Um, and he has a, yeah, yeah, sure, true. I'll say true. I mean, that's kind of crazy to think about, but who knows? Failing a drug test before UFC 200 was more damaging to John Jones's brand than the cancellation of 151. Ooh, man, that was bad that day. I remember that day. Um, I was talking about 151. Um, that's a good question. Hmm. I'll say yes, because there was basically no defending him. I mean, you guys know I don't have necessarily the same high opinion of USADA that some of you do, but in any case, the things he tested positive for, it turned out, came from an extraordinary amount of negligence, something that was quite avoidable. And uh, at 151, there was at least some voices speaking up for him, saying um, he had the right to do what he did. The only difference was UFC 200 wasn't canceled on account of him. 151 was. So there was this outrage um, that felt very strong. But, I mean, there was no one. There was no one really defending him in a way where it was like, this is, he had every right to do those things. It's like, mm. Michael Chandler will one day step foot in a UFC cage to compete against other elite lightweights. False. Yair Rodriguez will be the first person to knock down BJ Penn when they fight. I'm not sure that's an accurate stat, but let's say that it is true. We'll all be tormented with the talks of Mayweather McGregor until the end of time. Yep. (laughs) Yep. John Jones versus Hendo at Submission Underground. Who will win and how? John Jones. John Jones is, uh, I think, an underrated submission grappler from what I can tell. 
limited information, of course, but uh, I like his chances big time. He's the better one at takedown, so he'll be able to put Hendo on his back pass. Um, I like his chances a lot. Tim Elliott's chances against Mighty Mouse. Now, look, I don't know what to say about this. If you guys haven't been paying attention, oh God, how do I do this? Um, so the finals for the Ultimate Fighter, I believe, are tonight. But if you look on your DVR, or not your DVR, I'm sorry, your uh, your TV guide, whoever you have, I have Direct TV, so you have to hit the guide button to see what's um, playing or coming up. And you look at Saturday's event with Demetrius Johnson, it says on the guide, Tim Elliott is who he's facing. So I'm not sure who botched that, but somebody did. In any case, um, let's assume he wins tonight. I cannot report with various with a, with a stated fact that he is going to win tonight, but let's assume that he is. What are his chances against Mighty Mouse? Luke, assuming that Tim Elliott winds up being the tough 24 winner and therefore faces Mighty Mouse on Saturday, how much of a chance do you give him of pulling off the upset? I know that anything can happen in a fight, but I don't see any way that Elliott winds up winning, barring something crazy like a DQ or TKO via injury. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, I really like Tim Elliott a lot. I think he's a very good athlete, a great wrestler, awesome scrambler, um, quick, got a lot of experience. You know, he's a great, great fighter, but against Mighty Mouse, I Mighty Mouse has to mess up something fierce for that to be competitive, unfortunately. Um, but you know what? Tim Elliott's one of these guys, man, who's been put through the ringer, and he's come out the other side stronger in some ways. And um, if, if, in fact, he ends up facing Demetrius on Saturday, I'm thrilled for him, to be honest. So. It's just I don't, you know, I don't necessarily like his chances all too much, I'm afraid. It's a question about ranking divisions, but it's just it's too much of a question. Um, Tough 24, hi, Luke. It looks like a lot of the participants on Tough 24 will not get a UFC contract, although it seemed very normal to do that in past seasons. For this one, it seems like a strange one. Will this do Tough any good? Does it make Tough more prestigious? If the UFC are only signing the winner, it does. Except here's the problem: you know they're like, we're going to pull these champions from all these various organizations, and if you're a champion in one of those organizations that they pulled from, now not all of them, but like, like they pulled like the RFA champ, you know, um, Pantoja, and they pulled, you know, a lot of a lot of tough guys. Um, you're probably ready for the UFC flyweight division. I think that's a fair claim to make. In other words, I thought part of what this season was aiming to do was not merely find a opponent for Demetrius Johnson, but to help build the flyweight division. But that only works if you are building it. Uh, they're not going to sign a whole lot of guys. And I'll see who they sign and see who they don't in the end before we make a final determination about that. But that one surprised me, for sure. That one caught me by surprise. I was expecting... Uh, a very different response than that one. And I'm not sure what happened there. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about the Ultimate Fighter anymore. You know? Like, I feel like the ratings are everything you need to know about the Ultimate Fighter. They are literally 10% of what they have been in previous years. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, literally 10% or less in certain cases. Um, um, they are a fraction of what they used to be. 
and uh, no, not always 10%. I'm saying you can find intervals where they are, but you know, certainly a fraction of what they used to be. And I don't think it's a coincidence and I'm not saying it's a cause necessarily to take them off the air considering all the other poor ratings that Fox sports one typically does. But um, what, what can we possibly say about the ultimate fighter that the ratings and the general enthusiasm about the show don't already say enough of not much. So you're asking like, would it make it more prestigious? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but who cares? You know, Someone asked this, and this was emailed to me. Uh, Luke, do you think there's an element of gamesmanship with fighters' song selection based on when they're going to walk out? For example, the first fighter walking out picks a calm song to ease the nerves, and the second fighter comes out with a more amped-up, intense song in an attempt to break their opponent's calm state of mind. Now, granted, this question is a nonsensical in non-title fights if either fighter doesn't know ahead of time what order they'll be walking out, but I thought I'd ask anyway. Yeah, I mean, you sort of most guys don't know what their opponent's going to, to play, and even if they have a signature song like uh, Frankie Yeager coming out to Biggie, I've talked to fighters the majority of the time, and it's, every, well, I won't say every time, almost every time when you ask them, they answer with something that would make them happy. So they're not really thinking about their opponent, at least not much as I can tell. They're thinking about what do I want to hear? What what do I want to sound and look like on this production? I'll, you know, But that's that's the direction they typically go. True or false? If the UFC would have come to to a deal with GSP to headline 206, McGregor is still a two division champ today. Probably true. Being stripped of the featherweight belt hurts Habib's chances and makes McGregor versus Woodley Diaz more likely next. I would say true. Uh, Gagard Musasi fights for the middleweight belt in 2017. True. I hope that's true. Chris Weidman never regains the middleweight title. True. Jose Aldo defeats Pettis or Holloway. Wait, Pettis or Holloway? Because he didn't say and. So I'll say yes. He can defeat one or the other. I don't think I don't even I don't know if he defeats both. DC retires in 2017. Uh, that might be true as well. Fedor would have had more success at light heavyweight following the Verdun loss. False. The OC creates a women's flyweight division. By the middle of next year, man, I don't know what's going to happen with that. As they shrink the number of shows, are they going to like stall the number of divisions? I don't know. I'll tell you who's going to keep growing theirs is Bellator. Bellator's got, uh, I think she's fighting. When is she fighting? Uh, you guys should check her out if you haven't already uh, paid attention to her. Let me see what card she's fighting on. She's fighting on Bellator 167 on Saturday. Um, Emily Ducati is her name. Emily Ducati is a good fighter, man. She trains out of American Top Team OKC, apparently. Um, they call her Gordinha. Um, she can wrestle. Uh, she's got some decent striking. She's good at, uh, she has good finishing instincts. And she fights at flyweight. She's a talented fighter. You should pay attention to her. All right. Uh, let's go to the Twitter machine. Now that it's 215. Cool fact. Max Holloway or Anthony Pettis will be U.S. champion at 145. I don't know what the hell that says. Okay. Do you put ketchup or mustard on your hot dogs? Well, I am not one of these losers um, who tries to regulate that sort of thing. 
too much, but me, I put on mustard and I don't put on yellow mustard because I don't live uh, in a van down by the river. I put on mustard that has basically stone ground, right? You know, should have speckles in it. Um, if you if you eat yellow mustard, you're probably a child predator. I mean, I can't say that with a degree of certainty beyond um, irresponsible speculation, but there is there is literally, and I do mean this, never a circumstance where that is appropriate. Not one. Oh, I went to a friend's house. That's all they had. Throw their food in the garbage. Be like, hey, look, friend, you watching me? This is what I have to do because you serve your guests yellow mustard like a heathen. Sorry, I don't eat like the Visigoths. And you have to dump the food in the trash. If someone has yellow mustard, pure like, I don't know who makes yellow, yellow mustard. Hellman's, do they make yellow mustard? Whatever. Uh, they, are, they are trifling human beings that probably eat out of the garbage like raccoons. Okay. Any truth to the rumor that you would come out to the born theme? No, I can't say much. Uh, does my beard reach your, st what kind of questions are these? Your standards, a no shave November. It's getting there. Keep going. Do you think the reputation of AKA dissuade fighters from training or joining that gym? They got guys coming out of the woodwork every day to join that gym. No. <laughs> Uh, don't forget the powers, John Lane, 12 year old, single pot, Irish, still Irish whiskey. I agree. That's another good one. There's a lot of good Irish whiskeys. Uh, what podcasts are you into? If any, Ooh, um, I am into, let me pull up my SoundCloud and I'll tell you what podcasts I listen to. Let me go here. I will tell you the ones I listen to. I listen to some stupid ones. I listen to the Ezra Klein show. Listen to uh, politics and polls. I listen to um, that's from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, what else do I listen to? Well, here's two. You can start with there. I mean, I got a bunch of my own things on this one. So, uh, oh, I listen to the Bill Burr Monday Morning podcast. It's great. Who's going to remember 2016 as Cody Garbrandt's year? It's year the UFC made to NYC equals McGregor. Uh, okay, that's the way you want to think. <laughs> Who is your least favorite fighter interview of all time and why? I've already answered this. It's Force Griffin. Uh, will you be cheering for Masvidal or Jake Ellenberger? I don't cheer for either. Both need this win badly. Who has a brighter future? I mean, if Ellenberger can keep what he built off that Matt Brown win, he's in good shape. But um, I agree. Both guys have to get up. I have Jorge Masvidal on my show later. Safe to say that the resurrection of Rebney indicates that he is, wait for it, Bjorn again. I'm blocking you from Twitter. Do you know if interim champions get pay-per-view points? I don't think so. Hey, Luke, talk about your shoulder injury. Was it a bank art injury? No, I was a torn labrum, but it was a badly torn one. Uh, my shoulder, I could, if, you're never, if you're new to the podcast, you haven't heard this, but if, you're, if you've been with us for a while, you already know this. Uh, tore it doing decline bench press. 
years ago, and which is why I came to decline now. And uh, tore it so badly that it, my shoulder fell out of my sleep, and uh, my shoulder fell out of its socket in my sleep. So that was painful. Um, when you worked at Vox full time, did you ever want to give Ezra Klein a wedgie? <laughs> no. Uh, if all champions were to move up one weight class to face the current champ, how do you think it would stack up? Jesus, I don't know. Um, I, I have to go through and think about it. Do you think Holloway Pettis will go the distance? Yes. And do you think that or Cowboy Brown will be fight of the night? Ooh, Cowboy Brown will probably be fight of the night, but I do think Holloway versus Pettis will go the distance. Holloway is very careful and makes these slow adjustments over time. So I suspect that that will take a while. Do you think that UFC 206 will do less than 300K pay-per-view buys? Yes, I do. I don't see how it does. I don't even know if it'll crack 200. What is the argument for attending UFC 206 in Toronto? I will leave that up to someone else more capable than me of making it. Uh, I've talked about this before, but largest mistake made as a journalist that eventually made you better than you ever thought possible. Well, it didn't make me better than I thought possible, but it definitely made me better. Uh, mistranscribed and inappropriately headlined. Uh, I didn't mistranscribe it, but I didn't go through and check on it. Um, an interview I had with Brian Stan years and years and years ago, and it misrepresented him, and I felt terrible about it, and I had to like regain his trust to some extent, and uh, and of course apologize profusely for it. But it just sort of reminded me that like if something has your name on it, even if you didn't do it, it might it, you put your name on something and it. That, that's the end of it. Like that is the end of it. That is the end of it. I don't care if someone else put it all together. If you, if it has your name on something, you, and this will sound obvious to you, but there'll be times in your life where like, eh, you are responsible for that. So be very careful. Which division is more shallow? Light heavyweight or heavyweight? Ooh, heavyweight. Opinion on heel hooks and BJJ sparring. Yeah, just talk to the person you're rolling with ahead of time. Ask them if they're okay with it. If they are, go ahead and do it. And don't crank them. Pretty simple. You can train heel hooks just fine. But don't be like, you know, don't be out wearing a full gi and then start doing them. That's a little messed up. Thoughts on Cole Miller's recent interview by Sherdog, re his treatment of by the UFC. Man, did y'all hear that interview that Dave Mandel did over at Sherdog? Unbelievable. Unbelievable interview. If you guys haven't heard it, I won't spoil it. You should go uh, hear it yourself. But uh, oh, Enzo Zidane scored his first goal for Real Madrid. There you go. Enjoy that. Um, Cole Miller's audio is is incredible, and everyone was like, not everyone was like, but I know there were some people who were responding. Well, you know, look, I do feel bad for him. You know, he had to pay for two training camps, and he's only going to get paid basically once for it, and all this stuff, and. And to me, it just sort of highlights um, a lot of people are like, well, they could have done something else with their life. And it's like, okay, let's think about that. This guy is 10 years into the UFC. This will be his 20th fight. And he's at a position where he's av having to pay for two camps to basically get paid once. 
I can understand why you might feel like, especially when you can't even get a meeting with the powers that be to fix your situation, you might be feeling a little frustrated. In various points in my life, I've wanted to meet with um, the higher ups, and in every case, I was basically granted it. You know, there was a there was a way for me to rectify some kind of uh, concern I might have had, and that that tells you you're working at a great place. You know, when they're willing to listen to you, and, and they're not going to agree necessarily with everything you have to say, but at least they want to hear what you think about something, something that you might have noticed, or something that might be bothering you, or something you think could be done better, or whatever the case may be. The fact that he couldn't even get a meeting, and he's been with that company almost ten years, I can understand why he would be a little bit upset. And folks have pointed out, like, well, he's never strung three wins in a row together. Well, first of all, he's fought a lot of tough guys. And second of all, um, you know, at some point, tenure should matter. If you've been with a company that long, uh, you know, that should count for something. And I think this is the bigger point when people are like, well, you know, they don't have to fight. You can go do something else. If you're Cole Miller, why wouldn't you fight? You're a black belt in jujitsu. You train one of the best teams in the world. You've beaten some very tough guys and you've been good enough to be in the UFC for a decade. Why wouldn't you think that you could turn the corner? These are guys you want you, you want them to be full of self-belief, but then you want them to be rational about their job expectations. Like you can't have it both ways, man. These are guys, especially guys who has even a rational basis by which to think he could stick it out and make something of it and turn the corner and you know go to these heights that he had imagined for himself. If you're good enough to make it to the ultimate fighting championship, you're a very good fighter. And if you're good enough to stick around for a decade, you know, maybe you're not out there winning two titles like Conor McGregor, but you're a damn good fighter. You are very good. Very, very good. It's not crazy for that guy to think he can get better and do something. It's not crazy for that guy to have a chip on his shoulder and want to go fight that way. You know, and a couple times you come up, you know, pretty short. Sometimes you just come up a little bit short. And he got good the whole time. That to me is not the same thing as mismanaging your life. That's not what that is. Um, I don't agree with that. And the fact that he's got 20 fights into the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and now he's at the point where he's having to pay twice for the same camp, I can understand why he might be a little bit better. Thoughts on El Clasico? Yeah, F Barcelona. That's my thoughts on El Clasico. Uh, let's see. True or false, Gray Maynard TKOs Ryan Hall. I will say false, but of course, I've known Ryan Hall for a very long time, so take my opinion for what it is worth. Blue or Hay? Hay. Has Charles Oliveira stolen missing weight goat status from Lineker because of pounds over in frequency? No, I still feel like old Johnny Lineker is your greatest of all time, but... Rumble said recently he was open to heavyweight matchups. Who would you like to see him face at heavyweight? Ooh, man, there's a lot of guys you could. I mean, just about all of them, right? Uh, I'd like to see him fight Stipe, JDS, Ben Rothwell would be a fun one. Uh, Overeem would be a really fun one. A bunch of those would be good. Uh, let's see. Let's see. So that's a pretty long mustard rant for a guy who isn't a loser who tries to dictate these things. Yes, well, I mean, you got to let people know what time it is, man. I cannot imagine someone being like, wow, pull out that yellow mustard. We got some meats we want to eat. I mean, that's what a dog would eat. <laughs> you got that yellow mustard? 
Hey, man. Who makes yellow mustard? I need to know the brand. Yellow mustard. Pines make some. French's. French's yellow mustard. If you go to a house, the only... Okay, here's a caveat to this. The only, only acceptable alternative in the case of yellow mustard, where you won't be considered a child predator, is if... So, for example, I'm going to watch my Wizards, which is not often at this point. Uh, and you go to the Verizon Center or your local, you know, whatever large-scale venue for a pro sports team is in your town, if you have one. Uh, and it's literally all they serve. I can understand putting a little bit on the side. Maybe some of the heathens you're with want to, you know, make you pay the fry tax and dip a little bit. Okay, I can live with that. But if you go to someone's home and they try to serve that to you, just go, open their cabinets and start breaking their dishes <laughs> one by one and be like, I can't believe you would insult me in such a way. Uh, all right. Let's see here. I see Lomachenko. Lomachenko is a beast. Oh, my God. Made the guy just want to quit. What should be next for Robert Whitaker? Uh, I would love to see a Musasi fight. I don't know if Musasi wants that, but I think that would be a really interesting fight. I kind of want to see that. Uh, how ugly is the main event going to be this weekend for Mighty Mouse? We'll see how long it lasts. Last one on this one. Ben Henderson's future. Ben Henderson started his run in Bellator with two lackluster performances and has now been defeated in a spirited battle with Michael Chandler. He has a record of one and two in Bellator and has fallen short in both of his title fights. Is Benson in trouble? What does he do now? I'll say this. I do think he's in a bit of trouble and certainly a bit of a career slump. I'm not exactly sure what to attribute that to. Is it part of the language of him thinking he's going to join the military and he's kind of checked out and hasn't admitted it? I don't know. I thought he actually looked good in this fight. He didn't look good in the Koreshkov fight and he didn't look good in the Pitbull fight, but he did look good for parts of this one, not that first round, obviously. So it wasn't like he has had three consistently poor performances. He had two poor performances and then a good one that turned out to be a loss. So the jury's still out a little bit on that one, but if you have, I don't think it's also wrong to say that there's cause for concern. Okay, with that said, we have to go. I appreciate you guys watching. Give it a thumbs up, share it around, tell the whole world not to eat yellow mustard because that's for heathens and Visigoths, which I'm sure you are not. Um, and uh, subscribe to the MMA Fighting YouTube channel and, uh, you know, uh, my SoundCloud and my iTunes. You know how this stuff works. I'm just hawking things you don't really need in your life. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. And until next time, stay frosty.